0: And corporate power is all around us. Supermarkets wield it. Banks, mining companies, telcos, media. Uh, But do the so-called 1% and their vested interests rule in Australia as many suspect or is it corporate power? Is this kind of corporate power overstated? Um, Former journalist and now academic at UNSW Dr. Lindy Edwards has conducted a really unique study into the opaque world of corporate power in Australia. She's analysed supply chains and case studies from a range of sectors to identify whether we've entered the so-called Medici cycle that is where political and economic power reinforce each other in a kind of feedback loop. Lindy joins us by phone and it's really great to have you and thank you for such a um, clearly written study and I suppose we don't hear about Medici cycle all the time it sounds very Machiavellian maybe you should um, define it a bit better for us.
2: Well, I was going to say, Machiavelli is exactly the right word because it's actually, you know, the term comes from the same era that the term Machiavelli, uh, you know, Machiavelli was the advisor to the Medici. Um, And the Medici cycle refers to this family that sort of dominated um, Italy and a lot of Europe for about 300 years through, through the Renaissance. And they had this relationship between economic power where if you make yourself wealthy enough, you can buy yourself enough political power and use your, then use that political power to make yourself a lot of money um, and to re-entrench your economic dominance. Um, so they, they're were kind of the quintessential example of that sort of oligarchy. And, um, and as I say, their advisor was Machiavelli.
1: And so this is kind of the, the construct against which you judge whether in particular instances whether corporate power is um, you know, very significantly influencing our politics and sort of playing into this Medici cycle. And I think you know it wouldn't surprise a lot of people to know that big corporations do influence our politics, but it's kind of a, a difficult thing to exactly measure. What was your methodology in writing this book? How did you set out to test just exactly how and where corporations are kind of playing into this Medici cycle.
2: Okay, so the first point about it, and the thing that actually it actually came out from observing the case studies. The first step of the methodology was to realise that. So I was looking at the ten biggest companies on the Australian Stock Exchange, and it quickly became apparent when you looked at when I looked at what their what their fights were about was that. Um, these companies they sort of tower over they tower over these very long production and supply chains. They're operating in markets with only sort of one to four companies in them. They're not that interested necessarily in competing with the, with um, the other sort of one to four. And a lot of their corporate strategy actually comes down to redistributing the wealth along these big supply chains that they sort of tower over. And it turned out when I when I sort of looked into these fights or these battles that they had, that um, what they were about was whether or not was about laws and regulations that shaped where the wealth was realised in the supply chain And the companies were trying to win laws and regulations that enabled them to redistribute money along the supply chain to themselves. And so, sort of, the core question of the research was were they able to secure laws that enabled them to sort of skim or scrape? The wealth out
0: of the supply chains in that way, um, or not. And I think maybe the the easiest. I mean, you've got some really great studies in there when it, you know looking at um, reform and I suppose um, political parties trying to rein in some of this corporate power and the A Triple C and the like. But I suppose the one that explains best what a supply chain is and how companies or corporations can actually skim off the wealth is looking at the supermarket chains can you sort of explain how they're dealing with their supply chain
2: yeah absolutely so Coles and Woolies are um, a couple of, you know, they're some of the biggest retailers in the world. They're about sort of 17th or 18th largest retailers in the world, despite the fact that they only operate in Australia and we're pretty small. So we've got one of the most concentrated supermarket um, su- supermarket sectors in the world. And what those guys do is that basically because um, they essentially, between the two of them, they control... You know most Australians, uh, I think the averages are up around um, you know seventy percent of our grocery spend goes through coals or woolies, and that means that they've got enormous control over whether or not um, a farmer or a, um, any kind of supplier that you buy stuff from in the supermarkets, they've got enormous control over whether or not um, those smaller businesses' goods can get to market and can get to a mass market. And so they use the fact that they've got control over that distribution point to then um, put pressure back along their supply chain and um, to really demand... Quite extraordinary and unreasonable, um, you know, to make extraordinary demands on their suppliers. And we saw sort of through the middle of the last decade, and they had the big price war between Coles and Woolies. And what we saw happen during that period was Coles and Woolies profits went up at the same time that the prices went down. The prices customers were paying went down, and that was achieved really by um, by squeezing the farmers and the supply chains.
1: And so how is it that those sorts of practices if I guess we, we stick with the supermarkets example for now how is it that they're allowed to continue you know exacting profits and and really harming the kind of business model of farmers all around the country with the, the government that happens to be in place at the time because of course we've had um, you know many years over the past decades of coalition governance but one would think that the nationals within that coalition would kind of be very much advocates of farmers and people who are living out in the regions and would be very unhappy with the way supermarkets are acting. How is it that they throw their weight around and ensure that adequate reforms aren't actually um, made possible?
2: Yeah, this is kind of, this is sort of a remarkable case study in one sense, because the farmers are incredibly well organised and politically mobilised, and they do push really hard through the nationals. But despite that despite that level of political organisation, they're really not able to make significant inroads on coals and woolies. And we've seen um, we've seen this actually going on for a couple of decades at least, where there's attempts to bring in codes of conduct um, and things like unfair contract laws, which try and constrain. The way in which the supermarkets treat their suppliers, or try and sort of curb the most, the worst abuses. But one of the things that was really striking coming out of the case studies was that these quite modest, um, quite sort of straightforward and fair reforms um, just kept not getting up. That neither, that basically neither the the Liberal Party nor the Labor Party would support them, even though they were being advocated very strongly by the Nats.
0: And, I mean, you look at the different kinds of power that can make sure that happens. Um, there's, You know, you define them, um, you know, structural power and then this sort of ideational power, but then there's instrumental power. And this is the kind of very opaque one, the instrumental power, where even though the community doesn't support the, the skimming off of profits across the entire supply chain, that the, it's not in the interest, the public interest, therefore... Um, there's no sort of structural support for it um, in the sense of condoning it, but yet it still continues and that's this sort of instrumental power. And are we seeing that kind of power take hold in Australia, do you think?
2: Yeah, look, there are a couple of signs, um, you know, when I actually first started thinking about doing the book and sort of going, oh, is there evidence for this problem getting worse? And there are a couple of things that pointed to the to the for reasons for thinking it is getting worse. Um, one of them is that economic power has become enormously more concentrated. Um, according to the one study by the ACCC, the proportion of Australia's GDP or our total economy um, that's sort of, that um, has that is made up of the sort of the 100 largest companies on the stock exchange, but that over, since 1993, that's gone from 27% to 47%. So that means that 100 companies are controlling 47% of our economy, which is extraordinary. So this huge concentration of economic power. And then at the same time, um, that's been politically mobilised really dramatically over the last 30 years that, Lobbying in the 1980s was a pretty ad hoc, unprofessional, random affair. It's now um, a professionalised career path. Um, There's estimated to be about 5,000 lobbyists in Canberra and it's all been done in a much more systematic, professional way than it was done in the past.
1: We're speaking with Dr. Lindy Edwards, an academic at the University of New South Wales, who's written a really fascinating and important book, Corporate Power in Australia, Do the 1% Rule? And, I mean, based on your case studies, we obviously don't have time to talk about them all, but was any particular party worse than another in allowing for these big corporations to exact an influence on politics that went kind of against the public interest?
2: Um. Yeah, they were, there were really significant differences between the parties. It was really striking the extent to which the Liberal Party seemed to be quite systematically beholden um, in the sense that... So I looked at... Um, so looking at over 10 years gave me a chance to see if it mattered who the leader was. And actually, when you looked at both Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, they both made statements about wanting to rein in particular corporates when they were vying for for the top job um, but once they were actually prime minister, actually they they both fell very much into line with the corporate interests, and we sort of see various Liberal Party and National Party sort of mavericks pop up and try and push stuff. But at every at every turn, you sort of got the central the centres of power in the Liberal Party um, pushing back against that. The uh, stories that are sorry, no, c- continue. Yep. Oh, and th- but the story for the Labor Party was more complex, but not not entirely reassuring, um, in the sense that of the seven case studies I looked at, Labor got in there and you know put up fought the good fight and did what you might expect them to do uh, in four of the seven of the cases. Um, but when we got to three of them, which looked particularly at the power of Coles and Woolies, it turned it. Um, Labor started adopting very, very unusual positions on issues that um, where Coles and Woolies are the big protagonists.
0: And I suppose there is, you know, questions being raised a lot at the moment around the need for electoral reform and, you know, where funds are coming from to political parties and also um, increasingly loud calls for a federal anti-corruption body as sort of a, icac for um federal politicians and and the like do you what sort of hope do you see for for reforms like that and and do you see that they might be needed
2: yeah look i think they're definitely needed um the thing that we notice across the jurisdictions around australia is that some some states and territories have quite good anti-corruption laws and others are dismal and generally to be honest Um, the ones with the strongest regimes are the ones that had the most recent big corruption scandals Um, so we have New South Wales and Queensland's regimes are quite good um, but the federal regime is basically non-existent Um, that actually that the level of policing and enforcement around political donations, around revolving, what they call revolving door relationships, where you become, where lobbyists, um, you know, where former staffers and politicians become lobbyists, um, that the laws around that are really quite remarkably weak, that one might have... If you were thinking, hey, Australia's a modern advanced democracy, I'm sure we've got a political donations disclosure regime that works. Um, Actually, you'd be wrong when you actually go into the detail of it. It's actually quite extraordinary how poor the disclosure regimes are.
1: Yeah, and and what's really startling as well is kind of as the Medici cycle is consolidated or kind of teeters on the edge of of coming into full effect in various instances um, that you look at in this book, we find that public sentiment is often very much at odds with the government's action. For example, around the mining tax and the huge campaign that was waged against that by big coal companies and the like, the public actually, you know, broadly wanted these companies to pay more for the resources they're extracting from the ground. Also, with regard to the NBN, um, you know, broadly people were on board with fibre to the premises, yet that didn't eventuate, and also we see now... The public would actually like to see more be done about climate change, but there's been a handbrake on that for years. Why doesn't public sentiment translate to policy change, or even, um, you know, a change of government? Given that that people seem to be broadly unhappy with the way things are panning out.
2: Yeah, look, that's a really um, it's a really interesting question, and I think on some of these issues, we can see the dynamics. Um, we can see the dynamics around the level of hold that these companies have and i think the mining tax is a really great example where you know the labor party sought to introduce a policy that, to be honest was it was you know it was a good sense policy it made um it was you know it was quite a reasonable common sense thing to be doing in the context of the mining boom of going hey look Prices for mining products have gone up by 600%. Given that these companies are supposed to be paying Australians that own the resources, um, it's it was fair that, that the community get a better share of those resources. Um, and what was interesting about it was that despite the enormous advertising campaign that miners engaged in, um, public sentiment wasn't... People weren't convinced that actually the poll you know, people public opinion barely shifted over the course of the miners campaign. But they were able to they were able to get their outcomes through a number of things. They were able to get their outcomes through donations, through marginal seat campaignings where they could say to the government, look, most people might like this, but we can make sure that there's, that there's enough marginal seats that this will turn on, that even if the majority support it, it'll still cost you the election. Um, they also had really significant reach into the political parties. So even, for example, um, the chief lobbyist for BHP during the mining tax campaign was a former federal secretary of the Labor Party. Um, and so you've got these deep links from this revolving door of people having... Um, links to, links into the industry, and so that sort of. And then, on top of that, you also had a marketing campaign where the miners were, in fact, really, really clever about how they did it, that they realised that they they were on a hiding to nothing about the idea that they should pay more tax. But they realised that they could have a really big impact by attacking the competence of the government. So what we saw when you... So they put out, you know, they aimed to create this sense of confusion and uncertainty and a sense that the government was incompetent in doing something radical and crazy when actually most economists thought what they were advocating was perfectly sensible. Um, but they were able to generate this sense of a crisis in confidence in the Labor government. So even though polling on support for the mining tax didn't, didn't change, you know, barely moved at all, supporting the confidence... Confidence in the competence of the government absolutely plunged. Really sort of historic level dropping of polling support for the Rudd government during the course of that campaign. Yeah, and that kind of um,
1: crosses over into into some of the, the huge influence of um, particular sections of the media as well, which you cover in the book. But a, as a former journalist, I mean, you know, often these, um, the kind of revolving door and the fact that the, the mining companies staged such a massive campaign against the government's proposed reforms, um, you know, you, you'd think a lot of people would smell a bit of a rat in that respect. How well does the, the media sector effectively keep the government to account around these issues of of corporate influence?
2: Um, So we have an enormous, I mean, we've got an enormous problem in the extent of the dominance of the Murdoch press in Australia, um, of, you know, the extent to which they completely dominate the newspaper market. um, And that notion of, You know, because a lot of people like their sports coverage, they then get to shape people's perceptions of what's going on in politics. So I think that's a really big issue. I think it was really telling that when um, the leadership spill happened between Rudd and Gillard, basically none of the media turned around and said, this is a product, you know, this is about the mining tax. This is about, um, you know that it was very much sort of cast in terms of factions and personalities and Machiavellian manoeuvring, rather than going, this is the product um, of this enormous campaign um, being conducted by the mining companies. And, um, you know, and I think that's an extraordinary failure of our media to have not recognised and covered that that's what was going on. That you know, we started to get that story much, much later. Um, But at the time, everybody just wanted to turn it into a personalities horse race. And um, that really uh, conceals and hides the big structural forces that are going on.
0: So in this um, book, Lindy, um, Corporate Power in Australia, Do the 1% Rule, you've tested the gut feeling that a lot of people have that um, corporate power is um, taking hold, uh, in certain sectors at least. Uh, So are those that are concerned about it purveyors of conspiracy theories or speakers of truth, do you think?
2: Look, so what What my study did was it the methodology of it was that it looked at the policy development process um, in each of these different sectors, and it looked at what the corporate preferences were at the beginning of the policy development, and then it looked at what got legislated at the end. So you could see very clearly who won these fights, and what came out of it was that of the five sectors that I looked at, in three of them. The corporates were completely able to dictate terms in ways that ran against the public interest. In one of them, um, it was teetering on the edge, and Mavericks managed to make the most of opportunities um, that, that brought them into line. And in one occasion, um, the corporates really lost out.
0: Food for thought. Thanks so much for joining us on Triple R. Thanks. Dr. Lindy Edwards, um, she's an academic over at UNSW. She previously was an economic advisor to Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and a press gallery journo to boot with the Sydney Morning Herald and her book Corporate Power in Australia Do the 1% Rule is actually incredibly readable. So if that's kind of piqued your interest, uh, get your hands on it.
3: This is a podcast
1: from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
0: Melbourne University academic Kylie Moore Gilbert has been locked up in a notorious um, prison in Iran since October 2018. She's serving a 10-year sentence on charges the Australian government unequivocally rejects. Some, including Peter Grester, are concerned that quiet diplomacy is not enough to secure Kylie Moore Gilbert's freedom. Um, Peter is a journalist and professor of journalism and communications at the University of Queensland. He regained his own freedom from an Egyptian prison after a noisy and persistent campaign for his release and it's really great to have you on triple r peter welcome thanks very much and some of us know something about kylie moore gilbert's case many people don't what can you tell
4: us Alkali is, uh, as you said, a, a Melbourne University academic. She's a specialist in Middle East politics. Uh, she's an Australian and British dual national. She was traveling to Iran to attend a conference, and while she was there, she did a few uh, research interviews. And one of the people that she interviewed apparently flagged her as suspicious and alerted the authorities. They then arrested her, uh, charged her with espionage. Um, she, of course, denied any of the allegations. Um, it was a trial. There was no evidence that was presented in the trial that we're aware of to substantiate the allegations. But nonetheless, she was convicted and sentenced to 10 years. Um, now, in letters recently smuggled out of prison, um, Kylie has described her conditions. She's being held in some pretty horrendous uh, pretty horrendous place. Um, the wing of the Evin prison where she's being held is run by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is um, a notorious... Part or part of of the Iranian military, and largely out of reach of the Iranian government, um, she's being held. We understand in solitary confinement, um, with the lights on twenty four seven. She's been denied um, contact with her family, uh, with the lawyers and so on. And so it, it seems as though the conditions are, are pretty dire indeed.
1: It seems to me that this case hasn't really received as much attention as one would expect when there's an Australian national, um, you know, locked up on charges in a foreign country. I mean, you're someone with direct experience um, with this sort of thing. Do you think that there has been a little bit of quietness about this because people are really you know, hoping to allow space for the government to do quiet diplomacy behind the scenes in the hope that that will be the most effective mechanism?
4: Well, that's certainly the hope, and that's what diplomats um, usually say. and In fact, it's what diplomats told my family in our case. They said, look, we need the space to conduct our diplomacy. We need to be doing this quietly without loud, noisy campaigns, without lots of media attention. Um, we need to carry on the negotiations um, quietly and behind closed doors so please just let us get on and and do our jobs it'll all be fine Um, and that's always going to be the first instinct of diplomats that's the tool that they work with that's the the way that they tend to operate but what we learned well a couple of points first of all she's been in detention now for more than 14 months she's coming up 15 months Um, she is still in dire circumstances. None of the negotiations have improved her situation at all. There's no suggestion that she's, been, she's about to be released, much less moved to better conditions than, in fact, the kind of conditions that she's entitled to under Iranian law. Um, and so it seems to me that there is time, that the time is right to start getting a little bit noisy, a little bit more vocal. Um, I feel it seems to me that the government needs to be speaking more forcefully. But equally, other members of the public, I think, need to be stepping up and putting pressure on our politicians and diplomats, giving them a bit of a fire under their backsides to, to make sure that they start pushing a lot harder.
0: And, I mean, who should become noisy? You just mentioned there sort of a broad range of people, but some are saying it's friends and family that are most effective. I mean, is there a strategy that is known, known to work? Well, look,
4: I, I need to be very careful. We need to be very careful about this. No two cases are the same. So, so simply to say what worked in our case is going to work elsewhere. But I still think that there are valuable lessons from this. Um, in our case, um, the family, my family obviously became very, very vocal and took a very high public profile. Um, but at the same time, the message that they delivered was was very considered and always very respectful. Now, we couldn't control a lot of the more the more rabid remarks from other members of the public um, or the media, but we also felt that the authorities would make that distinction. What mattered, though, was a, a sustained and noisy public pressure, not just on the Egyptians, but also on Australian diplomats and politicians. Because I, I'm convinced that, um, without that public pressure, I would still be in prison. Now, the good news is that that kind of campaign works. We're able to generate one of the loudest and noisiest um, social media campaigns in recent history. Um, and I, as a result of that, I'm, I'm a free man. But the bad news is that it takes that kind of scale of effort. Still, I, you know, if, if I think her family need to be speaking more. I also think her colleagues need to be speaking more. And again, that was something that was very important in our case. Now, I was also lucky that I, I had the backing of a lot of journalists um, who recognized just how serious our situation was and, and what it would mean for everybody else if they didn't step up and, 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 and support us. But I think that's also true of Kylie. Academics are smart people they're articulate people, um, they know how to write um, and communicate and I think that, that it's incumbent on them also to to join it, to, to join this campaign, to speak up and, and, and call for a release.
1: Do you have much of a sense, Peter, as to why Iran would proceed um, with locking someone such as Kylie Moore Gilda up in, in prison in that country?
4: Look, I, I really don't. We we have very very little information about what's really driving this. The Iranians, of course, insist that they're doing everything by the book. They say that they have followed due process. That there's there is um, plenty of evidence, and um, that Kali is guilty of espionage. Um, and they have um, they've they've con- condemned uh, foreign criticisms and as, as attempt to interfere in their own ju- uh, judicial process. But we haven't seen any evidence. Nothing has been made public, nothing has been released to substantiate the allegations. And so in the absence of any solid evidence, um, we can only assume that there is some other agenda, some other motive. It may well be that she's being held as a kind of hostage in in a lot of the international negotiations. But remember, she was um, arrested long before the most recent deterioration in relations between Iran and and, uh, the West. Um, and so it's 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 hard to to really know what's going on. But whatever the, the motives are for the Iranians, as I said, unless there's solid evidence, um, I think what we need to be reminding them is that using innocent academics who are actually working towards greater understanding between the Middle East and the West um, should never no, should never be used as bargaining chips in any kind of negotiations. Um, you know, they should be they should be dealt with on their merits and if there is no merit in keeping her in prison then they need to release her.
1: Mm. We're well, speaking with Peter Gresta, journalist and professor of journalism and communications at the University of Queensland, all about his article in the conversation calling for more advocacy um, in an attempt to secure the release of Kylie Moore Gilbert, an Australian academic from prison in Iran. And you mentioned those recent tensions between Iran and the West. Um, this has kind of stemmed uh, you know, largely from the, the US withdrawing from the nuclear deal in sort of recent times, the sanctions that were then imposed on the country that sort of have crippled their economy, and then the, the killing of Major General Qasem Soleimani um, a month or so ago as well. Does this, I mean, obviously you didn't sort of, you're not working in Iran or anything like that, but do you feel like these have um, some significance in the negotiations that are, that are going on to secure Kali's release?
4: Look, again, I I don't know for sure. I've got no, no visibility, no understanding, no information about what's been taking place. Um, amongst, mm. between the negotiators but it is also hard to imagine that they wouldn't influence the situation in some way but as i said that the one thing i, I would hope that the negotiators have been the australian negotiators have been saying and, and the one thing that i think we all need to be saying is that whatever that bigger picture issue between the united states and iran and australian academic um has no bearing on this can, and, and should never be used as a as a as a bargaining chip, as a pawn, uh, this is, she's completely innocent of any 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 of the allegations, and so she shouldn't be caught up in this.
0: And and Peter, I mean, what prompted you to to speak out and, and write your piece, and 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 you're also speaking to other media to to raise the the case of Kylie Moore Gilbert.
4: Well, I, I saw the letters that she'd written in prison, and I really identified with what she had to say. Um, I really understand what it 's like for her behind behind in, in those bars in that cell, um, really struggling to make sense of what 's going on, struggling to maintain your mental and physical health. Um, it is an incredibly difficult situation to be in, and, and I immediately empathized and I felt, look what got me out was, was a more vocal, more sustained public pressure and I think it's about time that we started to, to get a little bit shouty to, to really try and raise the profile of this case um, because it, it, it's just something that I think has is, is gone on for far, 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 far too long.
0: Well thank you for speaking with us and, um, and, and no doubt by the sounds of it then we might speak with you again or, or others speaking out on behalf of Kylie Moore-Gilbert um, thank you.
4: The pleasure. Thanks
0: for having me. Um, Peter Gresta, a journalist, um, you'll know his story. It's uh, been well documented, um, the time that he spent in an Egyptian prison, now speaking out on the plight of Kylie Moore Gilbert, uh, uh, an academic from University of Melbourne who's in prison in Iran. Triple Ah. Emma Dawson is Exec Director at Per Capita and in uh, and in a past life, is what I'm trying to say, was a ministerial advisor in a Labor government. And with politicians back in Canberra, really surrounded by fires that um, which are burning on the outskirts, she's been writing in The Guardian about her hopes that Australia won't waste this crisis and will use it to build a sense of national unity. And we don't often speak about national unity. And I think um, because you sound so hopeful about it, perhaps you can tell us what a sense of national unity is in your view.
3: Yes, well, I'm an optimist, as you know, um, remain relentlessly optimistic. And I look, I think the summer has been, it's been shocking and distressing for so many of us, even those of us that weren't directly affected by the bushfires. I think most of us know someone who was at the very least. Um, But As people have commented on, sort of seeing people pull together and seeing those communities just, you know, the the volunteer firefighters, um, all of the people rallying around them, um, uh, local communities um, helping each other out, people travelling between states to help each other out, um, that is really the human spirit that... That 's so um, energizing and really makes you feel positive about about the future I, as we look ahead and you know at those of us with kids in particular, but all of us I think think, "Oh my God, what kind of future is, are we going to have um, But I was trying to I guess find some silver lining to that, and I think it is found in the in the human nature and the way we reach out to each other um, but then of course, being who I am and doing what I do, I had to turn that into a political story, <laughs> um, but i think I think the point for me was. It's actually um, when we find that sense of commonality between one another, no matter what our socioeconomic background, our cultural background, um, we have you know, fundamentally the things in common are that we want each other to do well. We want to live in a good society where we care for each other. There is
0: a lot of common ground, isn't there? But I think there is a concern, I think, and I'm feeling it from all different parts of my life, is what's going to happen when the smoke clears? Yeah, that's right.
3: And that's what I was wanting to say, well, when the smoke does clear, can we try and retain that understanding that we have more in common with our neighbours than we have in, with difference with them. Um, that we do actually have a common interest in making this a better country, um, in providing the basics for people and ensuring that people have a good life. You know this can send well, world such and such as lost their house let's all rally around uh, and so that they're not homeless anymore and yet there are hundreds of thousands of homeless people in Australia at any one time uh, that have nothing to do with bushfires um, and have very little to do with their own choices and their own hard work. It's it's largely luck and it's largely the lottery of birth and the way that you come into the world. And we can do things, we can make choices as a society to alleviate poverty for people and to alleviate pain. Um, and I hope that we do continue to do that once the smoke clears, as you said, and there are ways of doing that, but it, it requires us to think collectively and to put ourselves in other people's shoes and to stop dividing our society along the lines of, well, You've worked harder, therefore you get more. Um, you have made choices in your past that mean that you have to live with the lot that you've chosen um, to some extent. Of course, that those things are true, but we can also make choices about what kind of society we want to live in and to what extent we can act collectively to give a hand up to as many of our fellow Australians as possible.
1: Often any social divisions or demographic divisions are magnified mm. through the political process, which is by its very nature divisive and, yeah. and there are some positive elements to that it's good to have you know an opposition holding government to account and that sort of Absolutely thing but critical. how do we ensure that those divisions that are so heightened on the political level in parliament and so on, don 't filter down to uh, intensify mm. these social divisions that do exist
3: Look, it seems like a big ask at the moment Dylan because I think we, we are more than ever in a political culture certainly the culture federally in federal politics has been one of division and of obstruction since since Tony Abbott took the, the leadership of the Liberal Party um, you know almost ten years ago now um, and so we've seen that very oppositional nature play out in our parliament where opposition has been about saying no to everything. Um, And I know there's a kind of sense amongst some Labour supporters at the moment that the current Labour opposition isn't being oppositional enough. Uh, I actually think Albanese struck the right tone over summer during this bushfire crisis where he was very focused on Um, on bringing people together and on trying to be constructive about what could be done. There's also an old uh, expression, don't interrupt your enemy when he's making mistakes. So I think there was an element of that to Albanese's approach as well because Morrison did not cover himself in glory. Um, But I think, you know, the, the... that culture of well, no, we will just we will just argue about everything. We will say no to something just because it was the other guy's idea. That's not the way that our democracy actually usually functions. Um, and as you mentioned at the start, I was an advisor in a, in a Labor government um, going back, you know, a decade. Um, when I was there, um, most of the legislation that gets passed through Parliament House is done in a quite cooperative way. You know, it's the 10 or 15% Mm. that gets argued about that gets all the attention. Um, And actually I think people want to see a more constructive approach to our governance and they want to see that uh, the focus is on doing what's in the best interests of Australians. But particularly for social democratic parties like the Labor Party, Um, and the left of politics, and I'd include the Greens in that as well. Um, Our actions have always had to be about the collective good because uh, social democracy or or labour politics in particular is about um, representing the collective um, best interests of the majority of working people. Um, and working people that don't have access to capital, that aren't wealthy, that don't have a lot of individual power as the very wealthy capital class does, need to band together to use their, their solidarity and their and their collective weight to and make it, change. And
0: in some parts of the country we're seeing exactly those people not... Vote for Labour, mm, yeah. and um, and I, I suppose I'm, I'm resisting, you know, going to to the politics of everything because it's you know it's sometimes quite narrow, isn't yes. it? But but you you sense that there is an opportunity for um, political parties to really make sure that they're focusing on the right yeah.
3: things. Yeah, I think so, and I think people... where have
0: we done that well? Do you think I've, in look, the past I
3: actually? Well, it's interesting because this morning, um, of course, is the state memorial for John Cain, um, who I think was an uh, an exemplar of this kind of politics. He was the premier here in Victoria when I was growing up, and uh, he was a very um, he he worked in a very collegiate way. He he didn't engage in nasty personal politics. Um, he was just a genuinely decent person for a start, and I I um, I knew him slightly, and um, feel very sad that he's gone. Um, But he did take that much more um, collegiate, uh, constructive approach to our politics in the past. And I think we've actually got a a state government now that's doing that as well. Um, They're actually very focused on getting things done and doing what needs to, to be done to make progress. But... There's no doubt that in the modern era, um, politics is a lot more oppositional than it used to be. Um, but Australia has done things well in the past um, when we have had a big-picture focus on, you know, what's good for the, the good of the nation. There's always been oppositional politics. We live in a Westminster system, you know, that's that's the nature of the beast and it's actually necessary for the debate of ideas and the debate of ideology. Um, but I think I, I, the piece I wrote in The Guardian was, was, wasn't particularly focused on kind of liberals versus Labor or... Uh, as much as it was at kind of trying to remind those around the Labor Party. And I don't think necessarily the um, Parliamentary Party needs this advice, but certainly some comments that I've seen from Labor supporters and um, Labor members over the last few months or the last 10 months or so since the election has been, well, Labor needs to give up on socially progressive policies because they alienate working class voters. And that's just nonsense in my view. You know, I think all social progress throughout history has come from the collective action of working people. people in those um, outer suburbs and regions that have voted, as you said, against the Labor Party at the last election, um, have done so for a variety of reasons. But very few of them were doing it because they didn't like gay marriage, for example. You know, it was well, clearly more, more. No, exactly. Because yeah. the plebiscite showed that, you know, starkly. That was the only good thing about that plebiscite was we got a direct resounding no um, from the majority of Australians. And I think actually it's their economic insecurity and their fear that they're not going to have a job and not going to be able to for their family and there's a loss of faith that government can do anything about that Um, and that's perhaps the natural result of 40 years of neoliberal economics telling them that the government can't do anything and it's all down to the market and that's nonsense actually that's what government is for is to create um, this kind of society we want to intervene in the economy to ensure that it's giving people the best opportunities. That should be the focus for social democratic parties. They don't need to shift right on social issues uh, and if they get the economic uh, collective good at the front of their thinking, um, then those other issues don't, they're not what decide people's votes ultimately.
1: We're speaking with Emma Dawson, Executive Director at Per Capita, all about the importance of solidarity and unity. And this is all laid out in a recent article she's penned for Guardian Australia. And in in that article, you kind of articulate how it was prompted by the huge community support for bushfire victims Mm. and That kind of solidarity that's been expressed all around the country for people doing it tough outside of the major cities. There's also, you know, faith in politics and trust in politics is very low. Membership of political parties is is dwindling as well. So how do you read the I guess sentiments of the electorate of the Australian populace, because there's been commentary around, you know, philanthropy yeah. and and communities filling a void that really should be um, the responsibility of government yeah. to administer this support for people. Do you think people just don't really trust that politicians have our best interests at heart?
3: Yeah, I think I th- so. The the Edelman Trust Barometer came out a couple of weeks ago. and It's in its twentieth year, and it looks at um, trust internationally, um, and it's found it found quite explicitly that the collapse of trust in developed nations, um, in the OECD or the West or whatever shorthand you want to use um, has declined for one major reason and that's in the past, trust had stayed in line with economic growth, but now that growth is leading to massive inequality and people uh, that aren't in the top sort of 20 income, 20% income, 20 income band or wealth band don't feel any longer that if they work hard, they'll get ahead. They don't think they'll be better off in five years. So it's the breaking of that social contract between people that say, okay, if we elect you and we give up some of our personal freedoms for the common good, then the, the quid pro quo is that you'll ensure that we can work hard, have a over our heads, a decent standard of living from a normal job—it's that which has primarily broken the trust of the people in in democracy, both here, uh, in the U.S., in the U.K. Um, and there, there's a lot of evidence, a lot of um, you know, political economic history that shows that this happens repeatedly. Carl Polanyi um, wrote about this in the 1940s about how um, if if people do lose faith that they can have a good standard of living and that that social contract will be honoured, then they tend to stay start to panic and turn to the auto- authoritarian hard man to solve the problem, and we're seeing that happen all over the world.
0: And while we've still got you, I mean, we I, I don't know what we're going to hear from, from um, our, our Prime Minister when uh, the... Yeah. Uh, politicians start to sit in parliament again and we get question time like I can guess at some of the issues um some have been dealt with this morning with our brekkie team around sports rorts and the like but obviously the the fire effort and there'll be a whole lot of issues you know sort of ticking off for the beginning of the year but will we get to things like raise the rate campaign will we get to other issues other than the ones that we've heard through the summer god
3: I hope so I really hope so I think um I think the first, well, the indications are obviously the, the first couple of days of Parliament will be very much about the bushfires and acknowledging those people that have sacrificed so much and I think that's appropriate. Um, but the first piece of legislation on the government's agenda is the union busting bill, um, which which I think, you know, it's the ensuring integrity bill, which frankly they've got a bit of hide talking about integrity at the moment. Um, and I think that's a terrible piece of legislation because it does exactly what we've just been talking about. It further reduces working people's ability to collectivise and take action in their own... Interest. And so. should we
0: read priority into that? That's yeah. coming yeah, for absolutely.
3: Okay. So, so there's a you know they they remain very focused on on. Um, diminishing the power of the of the union movement, and the union movement is working people looking after each other. So, I think that speaks to where the government's priorities lie. Um, when it comes to new start, you know, ACOS has, has now bumped up its call. Um, it was seventy five dollar increase they were looking for for a long time. They've now revisited that to ninety five, and I think that's just in keeping with the inflation in the cost of living um, over the time of that campaign. We're not seeing any indication that the government will uh, accede to that, even though it's being called for from just about every corner of society on every basis not just that it gives people a dignified life it is actually economically stimulating at a point where the retail sector in this country is basically in recession um it is the number one thing the government can and should do both from a moral point of view but also economically it makes a lot of sense it doesn't look like they're going to. And I think one of the interesting things when we we looked at the response to the bushfire was people saying, well, actually, that my bushfire package, you know, if I'm going to get compensation for having not been able to work or lost my home or whatever, it equates to about $40 a day and I can't live on that. Well, that's what start recipients have been living on for a decade. And uh, I think it is an urgent priority. I think all sides of Parliament now, most of the crossbench support it. Certainly the opposition and the Greens and Rachel Seward in the Greens has been a champion on this for a long, long time, um, but Deloitte Access Economics supports it. The Business Council of Australia supports it. Get it done, you know. But they don't seem to want to do. Well, that. I
0: think there's also. Um, I mean, I I sort of cringe when I think of budget surplus mm. discussions, yes. and I know mm. that the the government themselves seems to be backing away from that. Mm. You know, should that be a target for no, opposition parties, no. or you know, let that Look, one go th- through the keeper?
3: I think this is this is tricky, right? Because from the from the opposition's point of view, you've got to see it that they were hammered for years for not delivering a surplus. This government has made it all about so it's tempting. Absolutely. To say, well, you said you were going to deliver a surplus, and oh, no, they haven't. No, they said they did. That so they said they did. So they said they did next year. Yeah, there was crazy tense stuff going on. Um, people
1: switch off about that stuff, though. I mean, people uh, find that nauseating. Yeah. Don't they? Well, Just people
3: don't experience the economy through the surplus or the GDP. They experience the economy by whether or not they've got a job and whether or not they well, ele- I don't. Their I don't bill. experience
0: it like that. And I suppose I don't. You know, I don't even talk about surplus to anyone. Do no. we talk surplus Dylan? I'll no. Never no. talk surplus. We never years. talk it. But will we start to see it? And I already know is that you know Mm. um political journalists are sort of yeah wondering what to ask about this because i
3: think you know you can see the government creeping back from it and from their point of view um it's been you know i don't want to make light of what has been a terrible um situation but it's almost a stroke of luck for them that they've now got an excuse they can say well the bushfires hit so we can't go back to surplus they were not headed to a, a comfortable surplus well before that and it really doesn't matter you don't run a surplus in a, go- a government, a public sector surplus at a time when your economy is struggling. The whole point is to put money into the economy because if the money is sitting in a surplus in a in the government, that means it ain't being spent. It's savings that's come out of all our pockets at a time when people are struggling to pay their bills. That is nuts. So, well, it
0: is nuts. But that said, we can go back 10 years or yep. a bit longer to the, the financial crisis globally mm-hmm. when we had a treasurer being honoured mm-hmm. internationally for... Using
3: for use for for, for savings
0: for, yeah, for which um, was a saving the economy,
3: Keynesian stimulus response. And it's really
0: interesting, though, that, that they were you know hammered mm-hmm. for that, yeah. um, from the opposition. So, I'll, it'll be interesting to see if they if the the Albanese um opposition strikes a different Yeah, note.
3: Look, I think so. Who knows what they'll say, but I think so far they haven't they haven't um said, well, you should be aiming for a surplus because that would be an economically irresponsible thing to do. They have pointed out that there's been quite a bit mismanagement of the economy. Um, And I think, though, if anything, to say, well, we spent in the GFC what we had to spend to keep Australia out of recession. This is also a crisis. You should do the same thing, you know, because that's what the government budget is there for. Um, But I think, you know, what's been uncomfortable for me, although perhaps unsurprising, is... The kind of um, attitude from the government ministers to say, "Well, these people have suffered in the bushfire, and therefore we must spend to help them." They're the kind of deserving of help, whereas people that are on New Start are not deserving of help, and that is such a divisive p- uh, political position to take. It's not anything new; it happens all- here for a long time. It happens around the world. But can we stop? You know, can we actually say? These are all citizens. They're all our fellow human beings. They're our fellow Australians. What do we need to do to to have a better society for them? You know, mm. it's a simple question for well, me. But like I said, I'm an optimist. Well, let's see if that does stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. No <laughs> Thanks for
0: coming in, Emma and um, Emma Dawson. Um, we invite her in, yeah, semi regularly on this program and into Triple R. Um, exact director over at Per Capita, and um, all the best for your year at Per Capita as well.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.